This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. In the terrific new film, American Fiction, Jeffrey Wright stars as a mid-career literary author who finds that the books he loves to write aren't selling. What is selling, though, is books by Black authors that he finds reductive and drowning in stereotypes. And so he sets out to write the ultimate Black novel under a pseudonym with all the tropes and simplifications he thinks publishers expect. But his life gets very complicated when it turns out that, well, he's right. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Linda Holmes. And today we're talking about American fiction on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. Joining us today is Ronald Young Jr. He is the host of the film and television review podcast, Leaving the Theater, and the podcast, Wait For It, which has recently appeared on some end-of-year lists of great podcasts. Hi, Ronald. Hello. What an introduction. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) American Fiction is the feature directorial debut of Cord Jefferson, a writer whose credits for television include Watchmen, The Good Place, and Station Eleven, a lot of highly regarded and very different shows. He wrote the screenplay here based on the 2001 Percival Everett novel, Erasure. Jeffrey Wright plays the protagonist, Monk. Issa Rae is Sintara Golden, a younger novelist whose hit book is the very definition of everything that Monk disdains. After seeing the success of Sintara's book and being told by his agent that his books aren't the kind of quote-unquote black writing publishers want, Monk decides to write a parody of the struggle fiction that he hates. Under a pseudonym, he writes it and submits it to his agent. 
insisting the agent send it out to see what happens. What happens is a rapturous reception from a clueless publisher and a reckoning with the value of his work that coincides with pains within Monk's family that challenge him to figure out what kind of human being he'd like to be at the same time. The cast includes Tracy Ellis Ross as Monk's sister, Sterling K. Brown as his brother, and Erica Alexander as Coraline, his love interest. This is a stacked cast. We are going to talk about the ending, which is important to the film, and we'll let you know when we're about to do that. So this has been a hotly anticipated film. I want to dive right in. Ronald, what did you think about American Fiction? I really liked it. I think that seeing the preview, I thought that it was an interesting movie. And of course, I noted the time of year that it's coming out. So I'm like, well, they they must have some faith in it being as they're putting it out in December. So I expected it to be pretty good. It was not exactly as the previews state. It ends up being a much deeper examination into his family life than I think I was expecting, but that was a feature and not a bug for me. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, they hit the kind of literary world satire pretty hard in the trailers and the promotion and stuff. And that's there, but there is this entire family story. Aisha, what did you think? That was very much my reaction too. I had to sort of adjust my expectations about 25, 30 minutes in when I realized that, oh, this is actually really, really incisive family drama. And especially from the point of view of the fact that most of the family members in this family are pretty successful. You know, his sister, Mm -hmm. actually both of his siblings are doctors, played by Tracy Ellis Ross and Sterling K. Brown. The mother lives in a really nice house, but the father, there's a lot of daddy issues. The father is deceased and we find out why and we know that there have been troubles. Um, But they're also all having money issues because some of them are getting divorced. It really kind of speaks to this idea that Black wealth in America um, can be very tenuous. And I really loved that examination of that, which I think is is a big part of the film. I did kind of have some reservations about the way the satire itself played out, but I'm sure we'll get into that, especially when we talk more about the ending. But overall, I'm still wrestling with it. And I love the way that it's making me wrestle with it. And it just feels very sticky. Yeah. I think to me, the key to this film and why I enjoyed it so much, I think it's that central Jeffrey Wright performance. Jeffrey Wright is such a powerful actor. He's incredible. And yeah. such an interesting and malleable actor who can do so many different things. He does a great job of making this guy, like, Monk is an arrogant guy. He's a somewhat self-important writer who has that idea that a lot of writers have that nobody understands the greatness of my work. What I thought was so interesting about the literary side of this story is that on the one hand, there is so much discussion of how publishers that are usually staffed by a lot of white people, a lot of white women, among other things, Mm -hmm. how they treat and consider books by Black authors. It does come down hard on that. But you can also see a little bit of stuff around the edges that's like, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. most books aren't giant hits. Yeah, The fact that Issa Rae's book is a gigantic hit isn't necessarily just because she's playing into these stereotypes. Mm -hmm. I think the film is fair about the fact that his complaints are absolutely true, and yet maybe there's other stuff, too, going on in the struggles in his writing career. Yeah, I, I think it's notable that we don't really get a sense of what Monk's 
original book that he's trying to get published is about. Right. You know, I think they describe his agent described it in a couple sentences. But even listening to it, I was like, OK, I, I kind of understand why no one would <laughs> buy this book. So there, there's that. And I really love the way that this movie, even though, yes, he is a very irritable dude and and very self-important and very judgy in the way that a lot of especially like middle-aged male authors can be about other people's work. Yeah. He does have a point because when he goes to the bookstore and he sees that his books are under African-American studies, he gets so angry because he's like, yes, first of all, like these are novels. And and also, I think he says, like, the blackest thing about them is the ink, which like at some point you have to be like, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe thou doth protest too much. Like, are you afraid of being considered black? Like, where do we draw the line here? But I do think that the movie is kind of fair to him and that he's not just the sort of like buffoonish character like he does have legit concerns he just doesn't always deal with them as we see with what goes on with this fake book right. that he writes he doesn't always deal with them in the best way and that is really his undoing in many ways yeah and i i want to clarify when i say he's that they kind of are unafraid to make him kind of an arrogant guy what i mean is that if they didn't play that part up you could really see him as like a hero against the system. Yeah. And, you know, it's so clear so many of the times that he's absolutely right about his complaints that I think it's yeah. wise that they also make him a person who is hard to take at times. Definitely. Yeah. It, it's one of those things. And Linda, I cite this argument all the time. It's like when you talk about Hans Gruber and you say, if Hans Gruber doesn't kill that guy, we're going to like him too much. <laughs> like we're actually <laughs> going to say, say the right things. And I feel like when you get someone like Jeffrey Wright, who is like a very likable actor generally, and he, and he does, he has such range. You put him in this role. It's that prickliness that they add that arrogance that kind of, I think, adds the human element that we all kind of have, if you think about it. Because Mm -hmm. when I actually think like one of the most important conversations in this movie that he has, and because he's prickly, is the one that he has with Issa Rae. Mm. And I was so happy that they had it with two Black authors in a room with no one else in there except them. And they're arguing about kind of like the soul of Black folks in the literary community, which is something that extrapolates to every creative endeavor for Black folks to say, like, do we air quote sell out? Mm. Or do we uh, make the art that we trust in and hope that we're treated with equity just like everybody else, which felt tricky. But again, you can't have that argument of those two sides without him being prickly, without him saying, I don't believe in race or him being like kind of unlikable at times. Yeah. Well, I I am curious, Ronald, like Mm -hmm. how did that land for you? Because I I was kind of on the side of like, uh, I see that we're not really taking sides here. But at the same time, I'm like, what are we trying to really say? And I don't know if I felt wholly satisfied by the way that conversation played out. I don't think they landed it well, but I do think that they got the high-level view correct. The essence, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I think at one point Issa Rae says something like, I'm giving the market what they want, which I felt was Mm. hypocritical to her original argument because you can't be critical of the book and also not be critical of your own work, even though you're doing exactly what you say that you're doing, which I feel like that's the part where I'm just like, "Mm, you got to tighten that up a bit. But I appreciated the ways in which they were pushing back and forth, as in her saying, like, you can't really tell us what we should be writing and him saying, well, don't you feel like you have a responsibility Mm -hmm. as a black person who makes creative works? I feel the same way. It's like, I have to make the stuff that I want to make. And I can't get too testy about any other black person that's out here trying to survive and make work when they're just making what sells. Like if it sells, it sells. Linda, did that land for you at all? 
Well, I mean, my lens for viewing that conversation is different. (laughs) Well, yes, of course. But I want to hear your perspective anyway. (laughs) I will say it acknowledged a couple of really interesting dynamics that I've sometimes observed in conversations, not just between Black people who do creative work, but between Black men and Black women. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment in which Mm -hmm. he is starting in on her about, don't you feel like you're just kind of pandering to this very obvious sort of like sensational type of of work. And she says, do you say that about Brett Easton Ellis? She sort of is saying like, do you go after these like white guys for kind of pandering in this sensational kind of way? Or she says, do you reserve that for black women? Yeah. So there's this very specific dynamic between them where she is, she is acknowledging the kind of the double dynamic of, they're both black writers, but also he's a male writer and she's a female writer. And so there are mm-hmm. multiple different dynamics going on at the same time. And this is sort of, I want to know what you mean, Aisha, when you say you have some issues with how the literary satire stuff went off. Because mm-hmm. I sort of felt like when I say I think some of it was a little bit too broad, it makes it sound like I'm saying they wouldn't be that bad. And right, that's, not, right. that's not what I'm saying. Well, I, I think for me... And again, I I already kind of hinted at this. I did, like I said, have to adjust my expectations. And I think I came into this thinking this was going to be more along the lines of something like Bamboozled. Yes. Oh, yes, I Where we go like completely off the wall, like to the extreme. Mm -hmm. What I, I kind of expected it to be even more heightened satire. And I think the satire that's here does really work. Um, There are so many great one-liners and throw-off lines, especially said by the agent played by John Ortiz, uh, Arthur. Um, You know, he has a line about how, like, in Hollywood, none of the producers read scripts. It's like the whole town runs on book reports. It's like, yes, of course, the assistants are reading it. Yes. Those moments are really, really sharp. Even the name, the pen name that he gives himself, (laughs) Stag R. Lee, which is very clearly a play on the old folk uh, song and folktale Staggerly, mm-hmm. which was inspired by a real life black pimp, apparently, who like murdered an acquaintance during a dispute. Right. There have been many songs and recordings of it done by people like Ma Rainey, Lloyd Price. Like, yeah. I really love all of those little things, but I think I didn't get a sense. And because it leans so heavily on the family drama, I didn't quite get a sense of how this book was being received outside of his world. Like, we understand how he feels about it, and we get a hint of it because, like, even his girlfriend, Coraline, mm-hmm. who is lovely, like, played by Erica Alexander. I love seeing Erica Alexander. Yeah, it was you nice. Know? Love seeing her, and she's great here, and she's reading the book not knowing that he wrote it, and he gets upset about that. So we have, like, a sense of that, but I guess I kind of wanted to see more of the outside, like, how this book is being received by the public and more of a wider lens and how like catastrophic this could be, not just to his own psyche, but also to like the rest of the publishing world. I expected this to be bamboozled as well. And now that you, <laughs> uh, now that you pointed that out, like, I feel like what bamboozled does that this doesn't do is it takes the satire all the way to the end. Like you said, all the way to the edges of the paint. Whereas this one, People it, it trades it, it <laughs> trades it for that family yeah. drama, which I, at one point in the beginning, I thought was hamstringing the plot. I'm just like, come on, man, get to the writing. And at some point, I'm mm-hmm. like, when I realized that I'm now invested in the family, because they traded out those portions, I will say 
when we get to the end of the movie, it does start to feel like, oh, so this was really, you know, a character study about an author's relationship with his family and who he is and who he gets to be. I still think it was great. Just give me one book club scene with all yes. white women discussing the impact of this book. You oh, know? Man. Or like an episode of The yes. View, something like The View, where it's like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one thing that's interesting is I think one of the things that we're coming around to is that there are essentially two complete movies going on here in yeah. a way, one of which is Monk and his family dealing with, you know, some loss and some grief and some what do you do about your aging parents and some kind of resentment between and among siblings. And I'm not saying they don't connect because I think they do connect. There's this whole other, you know, movie about yeah. his book and the his writing career. They're connected in the sense that they are both kind of about who does this guy want to be and what direction does he want to go in his life and what's important to him. But they are both meaty enough things. Yeah. I hate to say it. This is one of those where it's like maybe we should have had the six-hour limited series mm, yeah. to yeah. kind of be able to give <laughs> both of those stories. Yeah. Enough time to breathe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The other thing I thought was interesting when I I have not read the book Erasure, but when I went back and read about the book, it's clear that its structure is experimental and sort of nonlinear. They show you the book, the book that starts out as My Pathology <laughs> with an F <laughs> and is later renamed mm -hmm. F word. And they show you the book within the book. Oh. I think we should move on here and talk a little bit about the ending. Yeah. If you are going to see the movie and you don't want to know about the ending, tap out, come back later. Okay. Are you gone? Good. I think it's only at the end that you really see anything that is as structurally complicated as it sounds like the book is. And we do want to talk about what we think happens. So, so earlier in the movie, Monk and Sintara serve as judges for a literary award. Monk's book, the one that's now called the F word, which we cannot say on air, wins the award. He and Sintara are outvoted by the other white judges on the panel. Neither of them wanted his book to win. The final scene of the film is at the banquet for this award. So he goes up and he accepts the award and then the screen cuts to black. Then it cuts to Monk talking to a film producer we met earlier. He's played by Adam Brody, who is very good playing a sleazeball. He like only plays sleazeballs now. Mm -hmm. They're talking about what a movie of this story is going to look like. And then a few more versions of the awards ceremony scene play out. And one, it's a romantic comedy where he reunites with his girlfriend, with Coraline. They had broken up. Mm. In a different version, law enforcement breaks in and he's shot because the fictional person, Stag R. Lee, that he created as his pseudonym is a wanted fugitive. Yeah. So there are like multiple endings and it's not clear to me necessarily what happens at the end of the movie American Fiction, the one we are watching. So what do you all think happened at the end? So the first ending he mentions, and it, it goes too fast. He mentions to Adam Brody, I never went up on stage. I left. And that was oh. the end of it. That was, oh. and he says it very quickly. He mumbles it. Like, it's not even that he mumbles it. It's just that I'm still adjusting to the fact that what just happened wasn't real. Him not going on the stage wasn't right. real. I thought I missed something. So he does say that? He goes, well, no, what actually happened was I just got up and I left. And, and that was the end of it. That's literally what he says. But see, I wasn't sure if that was true, necessarily. I think you're right when you say... Because 
because there's two things. At the very, very end, he gets into the car with his brother who has a different haircut, which to me was significant. And it made me wonder if that was intentional, then it makes sense. But if it's not intentional, then it's very disorienting, which isn't good Mm -hmm. for the ending of the movie, I would say. I guess what my confusion was, and Ronald, you saying that like he says – Basically, I didn't get it. That kind of leads back to my whole sort of small bone to pick with the film, which is like, how did this affect the outside world? Or like, what was the fallout of him? You know, if in fact he didn't go up and and like no one knows about it. What is this movie? Like, how is this movie being made? This was my question. If you're making a movie about it, he has to have come clean Mm -hmm. at some point. You would think. Unless he's pretending the movie is fictional and not about him. You see what I'm saying? Right, right. Or the whole movie is maybe his pitch. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, what do you think, Ronald? Help us out. Again, he gets into the car with his brother who has a different haircut, which makes me think it's a different universe. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, it's possible that his brother got a different haircut. I didn't even notice the haircut, to be honest. The whole time he has that, like, little shapey fro thing with the part. It's short when he's sitting in the car, and which made me think... Is this a different universe? But then as they didn't acknowledge it and the camera pans out, I'm like, oh, they're not even going to say that. So, and I don't know if this is the type of movie that should have that type of ambiguous ending. It kind of felt like they chose to have those three endings to kind of cop out to say it could have been anything. We could have talked about the romantic comedy of it all. We could have had the tragedy or we could have had just this one where he has the impassioned speech in it. Mm -hmm. None of those endings I felt like were very satisfying (laughs) to me at all. And I agree with all of the questions that both of you guys are bringing up. Yeah, I at one point, he does say to the Wiley, you know, the producer character, like, there is no moral to this story. And yeah. I was just like, I am all for, I don't want movies necessarily handhold me or explain everything. I don't need like a beat by beat. But I do think it's just this felt overly muddled to the point where mm-hmm. it lost potency. <laughs> and and it, it made it hard for me to really understand, okay, but what are you trying to say mm-hmm. not necessarily like what you believe but like what are we supposed to take from this entire experience yeah. what is the story i mean yeah what is the story yeah one thing you know when you were mentioning aisha the reaction of the outside world one of the things that i was thinking about was there's a lot in the movie about how these clichés that he is packing into this book that offend him so much they talk a lot about how those are what pleases white people And there is the part where Coraline says that she read the book and she's really finding it moving. She doesn't know he wrote it. Yeah. I wanted to hear more about what the reception of the book was by Black people. Agreed. I mean, there's a brilliant, very short, brief moment where there's a TV on and it's turned to this fake channel called Black Stories Network, I believe. And there's a montage (laughs) that features clips of Ricky getting shot in Boys in the Hood, Precious carrying her baby, and Chris Rock smoking crack in New Jack City. Over that montage, there's a woman who says, you know, in a very BET voice, like, celebrating diversity. (laughs) And I love that moment because, like, those are classic Black American canon, like, Mm -hmm. we don't all like the same things, but, like, those are movies, well, Boys in the Hood, at least, in New Jack City, I don't know about Precious, but, like, those are movies that a lot of Black people love. Yeah. Having that kind of brief moment really shows that, like, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, we have this book that was clearly geared toward white people, like, how are we, who are we to say that Black people, like Coraline and way more other people, exactly, also didn't enjoy it or found, took something from it, you know? Yeah. I just wanted there to be a little bit of discussion about that. And I think, again, it goes back to, like, 
there's just a lot to pack into this film, <laughs> so given much. everything that's going on. Because we haven't even really talked about, like, I think Tracy Ellis Ross, <sighs> whose so role lovely. in this is... Too short. Woefully underused. Too short. Yeah. It's a smaller part than I expected. Yeah. But I think she's very good and establishes that relationship with him and how kind of reliant he is on those relationships, even though he doesn't treat them very well. Mm-hmm. And then I think Sterling K. Brown comes in as this kind of alternately sad and upsetting and sympathetic character who has really a complex portrait of a guy who is not the main character of the story. Yeah. And those sibling relationships, I think, are really beautifully realized. And there is so much in this that I liked so much that that's, I think, why I am kind of inclined to be like, well, I don't get the ending, but that's okay. I agree. (laughs) Well, we want to know what you think about American fiction. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. And that brings us to the end of our show. Ronald Young Jr., Aisha Harris, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here, Linda. Thank you, Linda. This episode is produced by Hafsa Fatma and edited by Jessica Reedy. And Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.